Welcome to another episode of Majoring in the Miners podcast, a podcast where we talk about how the majority of people focus on the minor and insignificant things in life. Your hosts, as usual, Mahi and Louis. So, today we are joined by Killian Hamilton, aka the Rain Man. Killian is the Director of Innovation and Program Design at Prescript, and he's also the head coach and the founder of K2 Coaching. Uh, we get to talk about uh, Killian's take on skill acquisition, training economy, exercise programming, tips for strength and conditioning coaches, and the lost art of debating. Uh, without further ado, we're just going to get started and get deep into it. Yeah, so a lot of people have been asking, is this just about barbells? Is this just about sport? And really, the idea of the course, and me and Shal just recorded, me and Shal just recorded a skill acquisition podcast two days ago, mm. uh, where we really dig into this idea of skill acquisition, because it's kind of been said a lot and bastardized. And I think the more I say it, the less it <laughs> means anything. But what I really hope for the course is that it doesn't give people any more answers than they already have, because I think the greatest disservice we as a community have is too many answers and not enough, not enough intelligent questions. So what I'm hoping with the skill acquisition course is it really develops a greater, more filtered mindset into organizing most likely the thoughts you already have. So if you already train mainly the barbell as your choice modality or your sport specific modality, understanding motor unit learning is only going to be better create an organization of the thoughts you currently have. I don't think I need to give people more answers when it comes to squat bench and deadlift. In fact, I think we have too many answers to questions that probably never needed to get asked in the first place. When it comes to bodybuilding, I think there's too many answers to, again, questions that never needed to be asked. And I think the answers more so lie in an organization of thought than it does in, in creating new answers to these questions. So with the skill acquisition course, it's gonna talk heavily about the barbell being a skilled modality or a skilled task to learn. Um, but in that regard, it's not going to change the game in terms of the exercises people choose for barbell or even the rep ranges or intensities. I think it's going to organize the thought process to be more intelligent. Now, I often say that I don't get into any arguments I can't win. But it's because for whatever I choose that my beliefs are, I've just organized my thoughts to a point in which they're not wrong. None of us ever have to be right. There never has to be a right answer but you just can't be wrong. And I think with the skill acquisition course, with the industry that we're in and with the, the people that we engage with, it's your ability to organize your thoughts and then communicate them in a way not only someone will trust you to, but in a way that people can actually see a logical transgression of events. So the skill acquisition course, it's like a, if you've taken L1, which you have, and you, I believe you sought a ton of value from, the skill acquisition course is the meta-analysis of Prescript L1. It's almost like, in a way, it could be a precursor or a successor to the L1 course. In you taking it, you could basically turn a flashlight onto L1 and go, okay, here's where the pieces actually go. I've got this big toolbox of ideas, but I have nowhere to put them. The skill acquisition course is now going to give you this blueprint in which I can take my ideas from L1 that were logical and thought out and made sense, I can now place them into a program where I can enact a practical sense to the thought process that was given in L1. Right. Uh, I, I really liked it because 
that was literally one of the problems that I faced with. It was like, all right, I'm getting all this information and it's just kind of changing the way I'm addressing my clients and like even looking at my own training. But, you know, as you said, when you have too many answers, then I was just like, you know, you start kind of asking too many questions and it just kind of stalls you and you're like, okay, now I'm worrying too much about like the nitty gritty stuff and I'm not focusing on the, like, you know, the bigger picture. So that was actually why I was like, okay, now when, when, when I heard about the course, I was like, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's entirely important for people to take. I think it's important for people to take who train themselves. I think it's very important for people to take if you are a coach or a trainer, a strength and conditioning consultant, whatever you deem your title to be. I think it's, important because we do get lost in this acquisition of knowledge. Now, something I, I talk about in the course, and I, I talk about a lot in, in consultations and mentorship that I do, is we understand in business, client acquisition is a very expensive task. To acquire clientele is expensive. It takes a lot of time, it could take marketing, it could take free hours of your time to acquire that client, but client retention is very cheap. Once you've acquired a client, they continue to pay you. You continue to provide a like service. Often the relationship is inexpensive on the investment side. The acquisition side is very expensive. Now that same thing goes for skill acquisition. The act of skill acquisition is an expensive task. Now we can make that expensive task more efficient or we can make it less efficient. Now I think for the client, the efficiency of acquiring those skills is important to them because their overall investment has a greater return. And as a coach, if you're stuck in this constant, you know, groundhog day of trying to teach someone the squat and deadlift or in the strength training world, driving the intensity in a lift for someone to a point where they plateau and then six months down the road going, oh, well, it's actually your technique. You know, it's your, you're in thoracic extension or your knees not doing knee things. And it's like, how did we get here? How did we get to 90% before we got the squat looking the way the squat should? So I think with the skill acquisition course, understanding motor learning makes the acquisition stage of any client coach relationship less expensive for both parties. If you want to grow mm -hmm. an online business and you want to be expedient in your process, well, an online business isn't going to be very um, cost effective for you if you have 10 clients online. It's going to be very cost effective for you if you have 50 clients online. Now, no one's going to be able to retain 50 clients if they don't have an expedient way in which they work. The skill acquisition course is going to teach you an expedient thought process so you can begin to onboard and retain clients concurrently by thinking through the same system. Ooh, uh, Killian, what kind of inspired you to actually kickstart this thought process or this sort of modality? Yeah, crazy question, man. Like everyone always asks about like, where'd I come from with this bullshit? Cause if, come on, at the end of the day, we could all sit here a year from now and go like, well, that was crazy. But um, no, so it's a, a book called the five rings. Um, I'm not entirely a massive fan of Louis Simmons, but early on in my powerlifting career, I got to train at Westside um, and Louis was there and he recommended I book. I read this book called uh, the five rings by Musashi. And it's basically very much like, this is going to get, you know, weird and kind of gimmicky, but it's the samurai code. So it's basically this idea of the five rings, is how samurais treat their craft. And the beginning of the book very much describes a samurai's relationship with a sword, a katana. And this idea that you need to understand all aspects of this modality in order to master it, understanding the weight of a sword, understanding how it swings, where the balance point is, 
how sharp it is and you know carrying this with you everywhere so when i started working out i kind of adapted this idea of mastering something to the barbell and thinking you know i need to understand under all conditions how i can manipulate this barbell and then from there that really becomes an understanding of manipulating all modalities at the gym and i think all modalities at the gym move through this system of cognitive associative and autonomous and very much that cognitive phase starting with your body proprioceptively in space is understanding you know how do i manipulate these joint relationships more than anything to create environments in which i can exert or resist force so the idea of skill acquisition was born of this book about the samurai code and you know mastering and living with you know uh, a sword and becoming a master of it i think if we look at anyone who works in a trade or has a, a trade level skill, these people have mastered some physical modality that required a great deal of motor unit learning. Um, I was a carpenter before I was ever a personal trainer. So, you know, a hammer, a handsaw, a chisel, a plane, anybody can buy these at any, you know, hardware store or whatnot, but we could all easily with little to no experience or great experience, probably point out people that really don't know how to swing a hammer. Now it's a simple single unit modality that anybody could purchase for, you know, 30 Canadian dollars, but few people can swing it expediently. That's probably somebody who spent a great deal of time in motor learning, understanding how a hammer swings, understanding in order the balance to enact on a chisel in order to chisel smoothly or plane smoothly or use a saw with expediency. So, I think it was born of my trade background going, hey, like when I learned to use a saw, I didn't get to use a power saw. Like I didn't get a circular saw. I didn't get a table saw or a, 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 any type of saw like that, a miter saw. Like I was given a handsaw and I had to sit for 16 hours a day and cut wood by hand until I was really good with a handsaw. And then I was given a circular saw and then I was given a miter saw. And there was this progression of understanding, you know, where and how I grip the saw, where my elbow is placed behind the saw, where my center of mass and base of support is placed in order to enact balance on this saw. So when I came to the gym, I just had a, a greater respect of this modality. Well, how does this barbell work? Where, what does my hand placement on the bar do to this barbell? Where does my center of mass have to go? How do I have to breathe? Where is this barbell efficient in programming? At what efficiency rating? At what intensity does this barbell really shine? And what intensity is this barbell really useless to my training style? So a lot of it, I think, was born of experience external to the gym. Man, I think you should just write a self-help book because your, your ideas just go into real life as well, you know? Like, because it can be used for anything from learning how to play a piano, like, to... Because I listened to some of your podcasts and you made some great points. Like, you don't get the piano first. You first learn the, how to read music. And it yeah. can apply, you know, to anything, really, anything where you need to learn a skill. Exactly. And I think like, that's what I wanted from, from this skill acquisition course is there really wasn't anything else, you know, in the industry that we're in right now that is separate from a direct modality, right? Like there's courses on barbell, there's courses on sports specific training, sprinting, jumping, bodybuilding, biomechanics, mobility, but external of all of this and omnipotent to all these processes is this understanding of motor unit learning and not just how we learn but at what cost does this learning come and there's a heavy neurological and heavy physiological cost not only to learning but to training and we see this in in the constant questions i think we're all probably berated with on 
mobility and recovery and, and when to program a, a deload and, and when to do all these things on the recovery side. And I think a lot of this stems from an inability to understand, equate, and account for, for the cost of learning itself. And when are we learning? When are we training? And when are we testing? And I think these three stages of, of everyone's training program becomes muddied in the process of when am I truly just learning a task and when should the intention and the success or failure criteria be based on my learning? When am I training a task and should my success and failure criteria follow suit? And when am I truly testing? Because in, in strength sports, uh, we love to test and, and every training session becomes a testing session. And, and we don't necessarily understand the cost benefit of that. And very much so sometimes testing sessions based on training age and the lifter or, or mindset or neurological cost outside of the gym, these testing sessions really just become heavy training sessions and we lose intention throughout these stages or adaptations to training and it either will cause injury, it will cause demotivation, it will stop people from training. And that, again, if frequency and consistency uh, are what success is born from, I think a course in which we speak to how to create the greatest consistency and frequency is really where success is going to lie, regardless of if it becomes a barbell or a sport-specific or a hypertrophy goal. Uh, and uh, how does your course account for sort of training economy or sort of, uh, not training economy, uh, like the sort of uh, stress bank account, I would say, like, because uh, for instance, Westside, as you said, I know, because I kind of tried to dabble into it, they would go up to one RMs every, every max effort day. I take it you wouldn't be a fan of that kind of training. No, not, not very much at all of the, of the constantly maxing out. And that's why like myself as a coach and as an athlete, I've never really truly been a fan of like RPE style training either rate of perceived exertion. But I think there are far too many variables that go into the perception of that exertion on any given day. And, and based on athlete training age, you know, maturity level, you know, personality neurotype, uh, you're going to get very different results from RPE. So in any kind of program like that, um, in the skill acquisition course, like we account for, for cognitive, associative, and autonomous work. So understanding that in the cognitive phase, there is little to no physiological adaptation on the lifter, which would remove um, from that phase of training, say a load parameter to scaling that exercise. Instead, in a cognitive phase, we would see movements progressed uh, via time or distance or perturbation to movement. We would include um, more external or secondary factors to the movement. Think single leg RDL and hip airplane, right? There's an abduction external rotation moment. Well, that's now a perturbation to that hinging movement. That's how you progress a cognitive phase. The associative phase is most similar to sport. So understanding that, that all exercises that lie within a specificity to that athlete's sport or to be more general task being associative, they would have to adapt to that sport. So if we understood in training, you're a power lifter and you're going to be training at max effort at a powerlifting meet, well, there's specific exercises in which we would max out. And those exercises, you had mentioned a stress bank account, those would be weighed against only one another. That meaning when in the autonomous phase, the lesser specific exercises, we can't move into this realm of, of overall fatigue or, or max effort testing in an autonomous phase we'd have to look at ways to either create a glass ceiling to that intensity or to externally support the athlete. I think where programs like Westside may go wrong or, or go off course or RPE-based programs 
is we begin to see only exercise of intensity included in the programming or multiple exercises of intensity included in the programming. So if we're able to create you know, some type of gradient scale to the cost of these sport-specific exercises, we could associate costs to intensity, uh, to volume, and to distance. And we'd better be able to account for these things, understanding that a top set of eight on back squat and a one RM deadlift are roughly within the same intensity or cost to the lifter, being that they're a max effort within a given range. Now, we can start to see that we can gradate that effort by creating rep maxes at higher rep ranges where ob the obvious intensity will be lower. We could create uh, a greater density via clusters so we could offset maybe driving a maximum specific effort in one lift for more perceived effort in another lift. And I think in the skill acquisition course, when we start to establish more and more rules per phase of skill acquisition, whether it be cognitive, associative, or autonomous, the greater the rules we can associate, the, more, the higher definition the picture we can get in programming to go, okay, I have this set of rules for this phase only. If I work within this set of rules, as long as I'm not going outside of those, I'm not gonna be creating abject stress to the lifter. And I think until we have those rules created, we get programs that are muddied for their duration and their, their daily volume with much of the same, maybe redundant stimulus to the lifter. Wow, that, that was a, that was a mind, that was a, wow, that was a lot. <laughs> I like, I really like the way you explain things and the way you kind of go into all these aspects. Like you're not just uh, one of those redundant speakers, but I wanted to ask, what is your biggest takeaway from Louis Simmons and Westside? Like the positives, because yeah. can't all be negative. Uh, there, there, you know what, to be honest, there are very few negatives from my experience at Westside. I think everyone needs early on in their career at the gym, especially if you're gonna be a strength athlete, an experience that's in, in some environment in which success and failure criteria is based on work and work alone. Um, I, I went to Westside within my first year of being competitive in powerlifting. And I realized then that there was a different level of work associated with being successful, regardless if people agree that they're successful, they play by the rules. I don't really care. I've been in the building and they all work extremely hard. To what end does that create? At the end of the day, it's hard work. And I think you know, a lot of us, like both of your, you guys and myself and, and everyone I get to engage with via Prescript, like these are very, very intelligent people. Oftentimes, I would say more intelligent even than myself, but there's, there's a big differentiating factor in the people that show up every day and do work and the people that are paralyzed by the analysis of everything. And I think, you know, we can sit and we can look at strength curves, resistance profiles, muscle fiber orientation, you know, neurological and physiological bank account of a lifter, but there, you know, there's a guy with a pen in his hand and there's a guy with a 200 pound dumbbell in his hand. It's usually a guy with the 200 pound dumbbells that gets work done. So I think the greatest takeaway from Westside was to do work and do work consistently. Uh, Amahi, you've yeah. been very quiet. <laughs> you, you just chew up all my questions before <laughs> you've just taken it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, one thing that I really like, uh, this was like one of the first questions I wrote down that like when the moment I was going to be on a talk with you, I was going to ask, and I like that you brought it up, is uh, when you talk about RPs and personalities, uh, 
for me, it was very interesting when I saw like, you know, our onboarding email, the last question was, are you a personality A or personality B type, A type or B type? And I just kind of want to know how do you uh, look into programming based on someone's personality and like, how, how does that differ? Yeah. So this is a question. This is a question I probably started asking three years ago now uh, on any kind of onboarding or intake with clients. Because I realized, especially when it comes to uh, mobility work, that personality type plays an enormous role in the cognitive phase of training based on the idea that we really need someone to get into a space in which they can neurologically adapt. So that doorway can be open. So when we look at a cognitive phase, we remove physiological stress in place of neurological stress. In the mobility portion of any cognitive phase, we're looking to create an environment that has a perceived safety level enough for you to open into unstable positions, right? If you do a doorway stretch for your pec, your body is so stable and so supported and you feel so safe that your body goes, you know what? My arm can enter into this level of horizontal abduction, external rotation because we're safe. Now, if we were to grab a 75 pound dumbbell and do a chest fly, chances are you do not feel stable enough to allow that pec to open. This is where people tear pecs, uh, you know, create damage to AC. So we have to create a, an environment stable enough and safe enough for that person neurologically for them to allow themselves to enter into new ranges of motion. Now, in the inverse side, in terms of creating a change or a stimulus in a, in a lifter or athlete, we have to understand that if that person is wired so tight via stress, whether physical or emotional, that maybe we need to incur a like or greater stimulus to that person to create change. Like anytime we look to create change, even physiological, like you add two and a half kilos a week to a lift to incur a like or greater stimulus to a lifter to create that change. Now, in the cognitive phase, we need to understand the personality type of the lifter because for me, doing some, you know, frog pose isn't really going to cut it for my adductors. It's not going to cut it for either of you guys, right? When you get a lifter who starts to, you know, squat two and a half times, three times body weight, deadlift three times, four times body weight, bench two times their body weight, a lot of these low level static stretches aren't going to work for this guy. Like this guy's wired for sound. He's ready to go. Look at uh, mixed martial arts fighters. If somebody gets into an octagon with another human being who's trying to murder them, chances are the reverse scorpion's not going to do it for the low back. We need to incur a like or greater stimulus. And this is where personality type plays a small role in deciding what drills is this person going to do for mobility? What drills are they going to do in the autonomous phase of training? And, and this is where some lifters, they may do a great deal of cognitive work, you know, couch stretch, 90-90 shin box, front foot elevated split squat, Peterson step down. And they really may take this slow crawl into a training session because they're a B-type lifter who has a low allostatic load and they're not primed to adapt. We've really got to start to bite off small pieces of stress to get them ready. Whereas if you roll in and you know, you're a carpenter and you also do you know, mixed martial arts and you're also in the weight room, and you're ready at any moment to go off and take a hammer to somebody, you know, maybe couch stretch isn't for you. Maybe what we do is, you know, a heavy heels elevated goblet squat, a rear foot elevated split squat. Maybe we do a sled push. 
then maybe we barbell squat and maybe that's how we bring you into a workout and maybe it's not your cognitive phase that is full but your autonomous phase is lengthy in the idea that we're not going to front end today's work but we're going to back end today's work in order to actually set you up for tomorrow and that's where in training the the levels and depth of volume in each one of these phases will will change from lifter to lifter that i coach because some people will do no mobility work before they squat but guess what the end of their bench press workout was walking dumbbell lunge with a long gait cycle and rotation and guess what tomorrow they heavy barbell squat well it was the dumbbell lunge at the end of the bench press that actually set up the heavy barbell squat of tomorrow because they don't have that ability to turn down. They're already turned up. So we kind of got to ride that high with them. Now, their overall volume in the high bar squat might be two sets, and it's probably top sets. Whereas the B-type lifter might have seven sets of barbell squat, and it might be just one constant, very submaximal load for a high volume because they're not primed to adapt. They're not going to be the person who really thrives from an RPE-8 type program. They don't have the allostatic load enough to turn it on and adapt to sport. You've got to ease them in with this submaximal level of training. And, and it's funny because a lot of times we have answers to these questions, but no one can articulate them. Like one thing about Westside is Louis Simmons does a lot of stuff right, but he has no idea what he's doing. He just, he just gets the right answer. And we see it's like, oh, submaximal training works for the untrained individual extremely well. The five by five, the strong lift, the go in add two and a half kilos every week. Whereas the RPE eight top set low volume program works tremendously for super heavy weight and you know, high training age lifters. I can squat once a week, create tons of intensity and be fine. The low end lifter needs to squat often at a submaximal load. Well, the submaximal load allows a greater frequency. The greater frequency allows for an uptake in skill acquisition. And at the same time, They've never really got under anything intense. So their first intro into strength sports. They have a low allostatic load, a low ability to adapt to stress. So we can't really throw a lot at them. Now you take a guy seven, eight years into powerlifting. He's done 16 plus meets, squatted two and a half times his body weight. Chances are he has that ability now to kind of turn it on underneath the barbell. And he's probably better going to adapt on that A type side from driving intensity, low frequency, and really pushing himself on the intensity side because he's wired for that. So I think the, the personality type question comes from how slowly does this person ease into programming and understanding that the person who takes seven sets and the guy who takes two, they're adapting to the same stimulus. It's at what rate do they arrive at that stimulus that changes? And it reminds me of the uh, neurotyping courses and uh, modalities from like Thib Army. Uh, I don't know if you know him, uh, Christian Thibid. I'm probably butchering his name, Christian Thibodeau. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they kind of do the same thing where uh, your personality determines the kind of training you do because, you know, it matters at the end of the day. Yeah, well, I, like, I took all of those neurotyping courses. This, I, this is not my idea. Shout out Christian Thibodeau. Um, what I what I've done is like with every course I've ever taken, the way I, the way I look at what I've learned is, you know, I don't know, like in school overseas, but like here, like we used to have those projectors, you know, they'd put like the tran the clear transparency on and then it would like shine on a projector screen and it was like a clear cellophane. So when I take a course, what I think about is every course I've taken is basically like a piece of clear plastic with all the information written on it. 
and I overlay them over top of what I understand and what I know and any other course I've taken. And I start to kind of just circle where these courses intersect. Then I took motor unit learning and cognitive association of autonomous. I took neurotyping and I understood, okay, this is, you know, how people based on personality type uh, work. And then I took, you know, a very basic rudimentary idea of allostatic load and I placed that over top and I went, okay, people that have an A-type personality are always brimming at this peak level of adaptation of stress and people that are a B-type are always kind of taking the slow ramp up to an adaptation of stress. So it's like, if I take from neurotyping the client in their base level, if I take the schedule of that client, that will actually draw out the wavelength of their allostatic load based on their schedule. I'll take their personality type and I'll start them on that wave dependent on you know, A, B, and you know, what microtype they are. And then I'll take the skill acquisition model and overlay that. And I'll now be able to go, okay, this person's an A type. They're close to the crest of allostatic load. Their schedule, you know, they work five days a week for this many hours and they train afterwards. So they're skirting with this high end of allostatic load daily. If I put over, you know, the uh, skill acquisition, cognitive associative autonomous model, I go, okay, well, we're going to be able to enter into this autonomous phase at these points, but, you know, the associative phase is going to arrive on most likely these days for this amount of, this amount of time or volume. I can create, you know, their total volume for the week, divide it up over the days, and then begin to insert it into these phases based on where they are allostatic load for adaptation, cognitive and associative being expensive to stress, arriving at the peak levels of allostatic load, autonomous being less stressful, arriving at a constant kind of low hum to the rest of their programming. So, you know, with the, the courses that I've taken, I've continued to literally just overlay everything I've ever learned on top of itself and just begin to kind of like take the red marker and, and circle the intersections uh, or innervations between ideas. Wow, like you, you are a gold mine. I just, I just wanna say, like Mahan has been raving about you and I see why. I'm just happy that I'm recording this so I can go and watch it. Like, listen, I, I'm not even worried about the podcast. I can, I'm just like, I'm going exactly. to watch like, this again. Like, 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 wow. It's just a treasure trove. No. Like, um, uh, sorry. Yeah. I'm, I'm going, one thing that I like, uh, cause I come back, I come from a kickboxing background and martial arts background and I've done music as a kid. And I just like this idea of the, the skill acquisition. The reason I it really like resonated with me is I, we've, we've all heard that, heard that, 10,000 hour, like, you know, just practice, practice, practice. And I remember I just used to stand in my position and just extend this arm and try to get my reach closer to the wall and just like repeat, repeat, repeat. But it did lack that. Like, I feel like the idea of having a glass ceiling to learning or like how much uh, in a neurological taxing it can be. Like sometimes when you're learning music, I'm sure people know is if they get you to repeat it over and over again, it just feels a little bit redundant. And it feels like now you're going backwards because like you're, you're just kind of annoyed and you get angry and you just like well f this shit and just like you know you just move on and I, I, it really takes that out of you so I, I that's why like when when i heard uh cognitive associative autonomous i was like okay now it's giving these different ideas into learning how to do something and exactly and like i think back to like i i play the drums and like when i learned to play the drums uh like i don't know if you guys seen the movie whiplash but like I learned how to play like jazz and obviously the the teacher I had for drums was like very much born of you know going to school for I don't know a decade to play jazz and 
it was very you know rudimentary and intense and and specific at all times and everything had to be perfect but you realized within like this hour of playing the drums there was degradation to the skill you walked in with the first 10 minutes was probably terrible you know what i mean you like didn't really have that motor reflex stretch reflex in you yet you really didn't have like the timing and the rhythm you weren't the best at gauging the tempo in the first 10 minutes finding your way around the drum set the next you know 10 15 minutes were very drill specific we're going to do this rudiment we're going to play this pattern okay you begin to you know fall off the metronome and then you know the instructor would be like all right well now you suck and you can't play this specific thing so we're just going to play the drums for 20 minutes you and i so you'd start to see compartmentalized within this hour well i'm moving from cognitive to associative to autonomous cognitively i'm starting with all right read me this music and like sing back the rhythm okay now take that and start to play you know rudiments you know paradiddles triplets single stroke rolls on the practice pad okay now that you've got that down now we're going to associate that around the drum set we're going to play patterns around the drum set we're going to play specific drills around the kit okay now you're starting to fall off the metronome we're just going to play you and i we're just going to trade bar for bar with one another and this goes for any instrument and you start to see well it's not just about constant practice it's actually about understanding like when to hit the brakes on a level of practice and when to associate in a session in the weight room you know with yourself or your client you go like you know what i probably only have 30 reps of squat i might only have 12 repetitions of squat but i want to get the stimulus of knee flexion i want to train knee flexion i want to train anteriorly loaded knee flexion i want to associate it with a front squat but i'm only going to get eight good front squats out so based on the intensity that i have in my program right now this is how i'm going to program the front squat i'm going to do two sets of four why do you need to do six sets of four front squat if two sets of four is your max at that intensity to be the most efficient why don't you go do heels elevated goblet squat rear foot elevated split squat ipsilaterally loaded the pendulum squat if you want to those are all things that are autonomous to the associative activity but at a level where a skill degra degradation won't remove the quality of that time now if you have an hour it's about making the most of that hour and it's not just about punching in as many repetitions as possible but if in organizing this training i can go well today i get two sets of four next week I just want to get 10 reps that can come in two sets of five that could come in, you know, four and three and three. And I'm not the best at math, but use a calculator and divide it. And you're just trying to add capacity to the associative phase. The associative phase will be as much learning as it is testing, but it'll rarely be training because the modality and the exercises we choose associatively are never best adapt at training us to do them. They're more so a test of the function and ability, the capacity we've built. So I think understanding that with sports specificity is it's not about training. It's about learning and testing. There's so much more we can do on a training side that is less costly to us that we can then just show up and, and put on display whatever our previous work is. Sorry, I was muted. Uh, so like uh, the difference between skill and output. So like, you know, 
sorry, in associative, you're working on that scale and when, but for the glass ceiling, that is that like you put a mecha- um, technical failure as as you glass ceiling and then you go to always technical failure, like yeah. outside. But the thing is, if I train technical failure for 16 weeks and I arrive at a meet and I choose to go to 105, 110%, the likelihood that I will fail on my technique is very low. I'll probably just not be strong enough. Now I'm not going to incur any, any undue stress to the lifter in terms of injury. I'm not going to enter into a, a period where I'm grinding a lift unnecessarily, putting at risk the other two lifts at a powerlifting meet. And this is something I think that goes often overlooked in powerlifting is it's not about not trying really hard because it is, and it's a powerlifting meet. You can go send it. If you've only ever trained, you know, technical prowess, then putting it on display and testing it, you'll probably test very well. But as well, so you're not going to enter into some level of lifting that, you know, your physiological capability leaves your body like a ghost and you just rely on structure to fight with this thing. And you know what happens to people when they send it on the third squat and they miss? They're benching their deadlifts out the window. Their back cramps on, dead, or on bench press. And, you know, they're cramping on bench press and they can't, they can't bench and their hips hurt. They get to deadlift and their back's thrown out and they can't pull. Well, it's like the squat got you in the meat. The deadlift won the meat. So I think I see, and I see this from just going to powerlifting so often now with the massive amount of population we have in powerlifting now, which is great for the sport to grow, but you just see so many people don't make it through a meet half the time. People just don't finish or they, you know, end up pulling just their opener on deadlift or they miss, you know, two to three bench attempts and, you look at their squat and they went three for three, but the last one was like two whites and, you know, a handshake from a judge. And I think if we train technical failure all the time, there's a massive amount of exercises we can push physiological failure on in which we have greater output to load. I can push technical failure on a squat and I can drive, you know, I could do a leg press for 45 minutes if I really wanted to, if that my, if what I was chasing was just physiological adaptation, I'll chase it over there. I'm going to chase it under this barbell where it's not going to be my quads that fail first. It never will be my quads that fail first. The bar is on my shoulders. If we could get that through our heads when it comes to powerlifting, that there is no squat variation that greater challenges the lower body any more or any less because the rate limiter is always the trunk. And if I want to challenge the lower body for output, I've got to take the barbell off my back. Sorry, that was my rant. No, no, that makes perfect sense. Uh, I'm going to give it back to Lewis because now he's been quiet. We do this a lot. Like we just get so uh, inspired. Uh, yeah. Like I, I just like to listen and just like, and not fully absorb, hopefully eventually like get this and do something with it and don't just be a sponge. But sometimes I'm just like, wow, that just took me on the right. And I just like, I don't know where I am. So Lewis, you go. So Killian, uh, what would be your number one advice to up and coming strength and uh, conditioning coaches or where do you see the industry now? Um, yeah, so I think my, my honest advice, it kind of comes from critical thinking. So this is a question that plagues probably every Q and A that I ever put up is someone goes, can you tell me some resources for critical thinking or what's a good book or how do I improve my critical thinking? Well, you asking that question is the answer you don't have it. And I think when it comes to up and coming strength and conditioning coaches, whenever I have a question, and this is something I truly do. And, and, you know, there's a lot of times where me and, and, and 
and shallow, like the muscle dock, we cohabitate with one another. And imagine if you guys within an hour podcast or a lab or a prescript lecture, you think we get us rambling on about something. Well, you're getting the distilled professional thought through process on what we're talking about. There's 13 hours of us sitting in a room and I'm yelling at shallow while he's trying to build a bed. And I'm like, yeah, well, what do you think about this? And like, how about this? And he's like, leave me alone for five minutes. But the first thing I go through in my mind when I have a question is I always think, what do I already know? And I think because of how expedient and how relevant and ready information is to be acquired by people these days, we never ask truly what we already know. Now, I, have, I don't know everything. I know very little about a lot. And I have a lot of questions all day. And much of what I talk about is born of me asking a thousand questions. But I ask, weirdly, I ask these questions first inwardly of myself. And I go through a stage where I go, what do I already know about this topic? Like, how do I program a barbell squat for an Olympic trampoline athlete? Well, before I yell this question into Google and I let it use an algorithm to spit stuff back at me, I go, well, what do I know simply about the barbell squat itself? The barbell is efficient between 75 and 100% intensity. The barbell is loaded bilaterally. The barbell can be used to challenge hip flexion, knee flexion, and greater levels of hip extension. The rate limit of the barbell is the trunk. It could be high bar, it could be front. If I'm gonna be challenging 75 to 100%, I'm probably gonna be looking at less than or equal to 30 reps per session in a trained individual. If I'm going to take 75 to 100% and divide it over 30 reps, there's only so many ways I can cut these reps up. I can do a top set of, of eight. I can do four sets of eight at a very low intensity. I could train five sets of five. You know, I could do 10 sets of one. Now I want to look at what the trampoline athlete does. Okay, well, a trampoline athlete, if we're looking at how the barbell squat would affect a trampoline athlete, they're going to be going through a great level of, you know, stretch reflex. They're going to be going through constant kind of jump mechanics and dorsiflexion well you know what maybe i load the front squat and the trampoline athlete i load them to a high box with a narrow stance and i cluster set them so we do a five by three by three cluster with 15 seconds between clusters and three minutes between rounds and now we're starting to get this adaptation to a greater amount of load than they'll ever they'll ever encounter on the trampoline but we're looking at uh, not only creating, but resisting ground force. So now when I go to ask this question about the trampoline athlete, well, I have 95% of my answers. My next question would be physically having a trampoline athlete in front of me and looking at, do they have the ability to hold the front rack? And if they front racked a barbell or axially loaded a barbell, would it start to um, contradict other aspects of their sport? Well, now I just have to go to YouTube and watch a video of someone do trampoline and think through the process. But I've answered a bunch of questions about a trampoline athlete without ever really even knowing anything about trampoline. I just had to understand the modalities that I had play at the gym. Now, I think with strength and conditioning coaches, we immediately just start to yell questions into the internet. And they're so generic in the question. It's so hard to even help people with the answer what should I do if uh, this athlete's knee caves when they do heavy squats? Well, man, a heavy, heavy is what? What does heavy mean to you? What's the modality? How tall is the client? What's the training age of the client? 
you know what I mean? What's the pathology, morphology of the client? At what day in the week are they squatting? What time in the week are they squatting? Do they have a day job? Are they a professional athlete? Is this their first or second session of the week? There's so many questions we could ask that the question of what should I do with my athlete's knee caves, it's not even a question at all. It's kind of an idea. And I think for strength and conditioning coaches from day one, first ask inwardly of yourself, what do I already know? And in your, in your asking of a question, be so specific in the details that your answer it has one tenant to it. We always want you know, a one tenant, one property answer because if an answer has more than one property to it, it's still not an answer. It's really just another question. Yeah, absolutely. I think people, because I, I, I don't deal with athletes. I deal with gym pop clients. And it's still the fact that like, because I think people are so used to having information available to them. Now in the, they're in the habit of just asking questions. There is not even, they don't even look for answers anymore. It's just, what's the next question? What's the next question? It's just like, uh, we don't take a second to actually think about what is the answer we're looking for. It's just about like, uh, the simplest things like you know take it from a gen pop client who's like oh how can i lose belly fat or how can i lose my love handles and then going through someone who's doing squats and like as you said uh, how can i fix my you know knee cave in and everything else so yeah I, li- I like that idea of like you know what do i know um and would you say like so you go inwards and you think you try to like formulate an answer yourself and then if if you like would you pinpoint an area that you're weak in and then try to go and strengthen that like um figure out you know i'll look at someone i'm like all right these are my answers like you know what do i know how much like for example anatomy i know or how much you know uh, biomechanics or like anything else and then i'm like all right i lack in this area so i'm just going to go and try to instead of answering the questions try to go and bring that area up first a hundred percent so it's like and that's what i would do is i would i would answer as many questions as I can. And I would look at in what aspect of, of being a strength coach, do you not have an answer in, right? It's like, if you can answer like me, if you can answer programming, you know, exercise choice, frequency, execution and technique, but you're like the muscles used, I have no idea like where they insert or innervate or the synergist or antagonist agonist relationship. Then yeah, maybe that answer for you is like, you know what? I can answer everything, but the anatomy. And then it's like, go answer the anatomy. Like we're talking right now. And like, I have a book on anatomy that sits on my coffee table permanently. And all I do, cause I have to talk to shallow and he's going to just yell dumb anatomy things at me. So it's like, I keep this here. So when he calls me, I'm like, what are you talking about? Like I'm talking about a hammer and a piano and a drum set and shallows out here saying multifidus and, you know, posterior oblique sling and, transverse abdominus. I'm like, I don't, what are you talking about, man? So it's like, I have this here. So th- if that's the thing that I don't have answers to, I can go find the answers there. But yeah, just like you're saying, it's, it's the questions you ask inward that, that really reveal where you're going to find your answer from. Like there's a great quote in that book, The Five Rings that I'm going to butcher and, and paraphrase, but it's the idea basically, you know, to paraphrase it, it's to, to be steadfast in what you know, is not to not listen to other people, but it's when you listen to other people's ideas, it helps you understand your beliefs better. Like I don't get into an argument I can lose because no one's ever gonna convince me that their idea is better than mine. The way I approach training will always be the way I approach training. I've done it for seven years, going on probably a decade with myself as, 
in like personally in seven years as a coach, I'm not going to change how I approach training. I approach motor unit learning the same way. But when I speak to people about West side, when I speak to people about RPE, when I talk to shallow about organizing hypertrophy training in speaking with him, it either confirms or better allows me to understand my own approach. It doesn't change what I believe in. And I think in this industry in which information is so readily available, no one stands for everything because every day they learn something new. Now I learn new stuff all the time. It doesn't change how I feel. It allows me to better understand and contextualize and conceptualize my current belief and philosophy. It doesn't change what I believe in. And I think we just live within this market. Like people ask me a lot of questions because they don't believe in anything. Like I know, like when I get a question in my Q and A, I know someone just watched somebody else's YouTube video and it contradicted their beliefs. And now they're searching to understand if they were right or if the other person was wrong. That is never what I think when I read something new. If I read something about RPE, I go, how can I create that cellophane overlay to my already established training philosophy? And where could this interact? And if there are deltas and interactions between a philosophy and my own, I will keep those interactions, much like I did with neurotyping. I went, oh, okay, it intersects here with what I already do. I'm going to make those circles. I'm going to pull that cellophane away. I'm going to keep these deltas in my training. But I'm not all of a sudden going to rewrite all my programs because I took some six-week course with some bald guy who whips a mace around like who's he compared to me right we're contemporaries we exist in the same time so i think better critical thinking and a greater sense of self again i think you shut us up no sorry <laughs> that's all right no that's a good thing uh what are your what's your take on wave loading just to change the subject a bit uh, I love wave loading. Uh, big fan of wave loading um, in experienced lifters who may be coming off an RPE style program or an experienced lifter who loves to drive intensity. I love to wave load to create a greater level of perceived exertion so that we can start to train at, you know, uh, more sub-maximal levels actually. Like I don't like to use it to push intensity. I use, to, I use it to scale back intensity. Um, and on the weightlifting side of things with the few clients that I have that do weightlifting and myself, um, I'll use wave loading to keep technique high, but begin to introduce intensity in say a weightlifter or a more like dynamic sport athlete. So a sprinter, a jumper, a field sports athlete, I'll use uh, wave loading to start to introduce uh, intensity, say prior to an intensification phase or a realization phase. And then in an experienced powerlifter, I'll actually use it to create some type of ceiling of exertion in order for this person to not, you know, take RP 10 for RP seven and a half every single session. So, you know, we'll, we'll wave load it. You'll wave load up to, you know, a single between, you know, maybe 85 and 90% as opposed to you just running in this ascending fashion all the way up. And what's your like favorite hypertrophy kind of modality? Like the go-to thing for you, you want to bulk up in one, one month. What would you go for? So I would jump on like any uh, like cam and pulley pin loaded machine or a, a hammer strength plate loaded machine. Um, I would pick uh, agonist or uh, agonist relationships. Uh, and I would kind of go like the Mike Menser hardcore training way. And I would train uh, two sets to like absolute failure. Uh, I'd go chest fly, chest press. I'd go 
lat pull down, horizontal row. I'd go leg press, leg extension, hamstring curl, seated hamstring curl, lying hamstring curl, back extension, whatever you have, and choose agonist relationships. Um, the, so when I look at, in terms of hypertrophy and I look at modality, I consider, so when I look at efficiency ratings of movements or, or tools that you can use in the gym, I look at the hammer strength and I look at the barbell as the exact same modality. The difference is external stability. So if you look at it, they're both loaded with plates and they both have this resistance profile that almost mimics a barbell where they have these steep drop-offs in resistance. Now, I would program them the same. I don't know why people sit on hammer strength machines and do 20 reps. I really don't understand. The hammer strength allows you to load as many 45s as you want. That's the greatest intensity via load. It's so externally stabilized. And if you get on the really nice ones, they have those huge seats on them. Then like your shoulders are fully supported and it increases your output by like 15%. Now get on a hammer strength and train absolute intensity. Like, dude, if you're on a plate loaded machine, train that thing for like eight reps. Train it for six to eight reps, the crazy tempo, because you're allowed to. The machine is allowing you to. So if you want to induce great amounts of hypertrophy, take the skill out of the movement, like throw the barbell away. Like why would I let technique get in between me and creating as much metabolic stress as possible and getting into externally supported or stabilized lengthened positions? We think that lengthened activates the most. Uh, muscle fiber and has the greatest hypertrophic effect. Well, fine. Let's induce metabolic stress on a hammer strength machine. I have the ability to load this machine to its absolute intensity. So program it as if you were programming a high intensity barbell workout. But now you have the option to drive two times, three times as much output because the barbell doesn't exist in the workout to create this ceiling of stress via neurological adaptation. If I'm searching for hypertrophy physiological adaptation, I'm looking for low neurologically costly exercises at all times. Hypertrophy, physiological, cut the neurological stuff out. No internal stabilization, no skilled movement. Get on something that drives output. And uh, how do you feel about German volume training? Uh, I think it's complete nonsense. Um, I think German volume training became popular because I don't know, everybody likes to read T Nation. But when I look at the barbell, the barbell is efficient between 75% and 100% intensity. That would dictate I get one set of eight at 80%, or I get five sets of five at 75%, or I get three sets of three at 85%. That in no way, shape, or form, I get 10 sets of 10 with a barbell because the intensity I'd load the barbell with, which would be so low that I'm not even getting 10 sets of 10, I'm probably getting four sets of 10 or three sets of 10 anyways, because there's an article by Lyle McDonald on rep range efficiency. And I don't know if I went off on a lab about this, but you're gonna get five to eight repetitions of maximum muscle fiber recruitment, no matter the modality, no matter the intensity. At what point in a set, you reach the five to eight reps of maximum muscle fiber recruitment is solely dictated by the intensity in which you're training which would then have an effect on the modality that you choose. If I choose a barbell, it's, it's effective between 75 and 100%, which means I'm gonna get all five to eight repetitions of maximum muscle fiber recruitment right out of the gate. The first repetition I use with a barbell at 75%, maximum muscle fiber recruitment. 
The eighth rep, maximum muscle fiber recruitment. If I'm going to enter into an intensity lower than 75%, I'm going to now have this almost like pre-fatigue state in which I need to train two or three repetitions to raise my level of perceived exertion for me to actually incur this maximum muscle fiber recruitment. Now, muscle fiber recruitment and activation don't lead to stimulus and hypertrophy, but to have muscle fiber available to me to stimulate would be very important to me. Now, to spend an hour of my workout with an inefficient means of challenging muscle fibers in a shortened or lengthened position with a modality that was only effective for five to eight reps to begin with and training at an intensity in which the modality was useless is kind of a nonsense approach to training. Why don't I give this guy a top set of eight, three sets of five with a barbell, get the hell away from that thing, go sit on the leg press for, you know, 20 reps, 15 reps, 12 reps, 10 reps, a drop set of, you know, just reps to ultimate fatigue. And why don't I go sit over there where I can actually challenge, you know, the glute in a more lengthened position, the quad in a more shortened position and train those adaptations I'm looking for from the barbell now in an externally stabilized means in which I can drive that intensity. No one's doing German volume comp with 80% on the bar. It's not happening. It's a nonsense workout. And it's, you know, it's taking a screwdriver out and trying to hammer a nail. Well, it's fine. Like there's guys that can go do that and they'll work up a sweat and they'll be all aggro at the end of it. I'm just going to get a drill out and screw in 10 nails and be done and get a paycheck and go home. So I think German volume training existed at a time when, you know, maybe not a lot of people were using the barbell. And we saw that like GBT came out when everyone was sitting on hammer strength machines or those Kaiser, Pat Davidson, starfish air pressure machines. Well, you know what? The one guy who rolls into the gym and does 10 sets with a barbell seems pretty hardcore. But guess what? People have been using barbells almost exclusively for the last decade now in commercial gyms. GBT seems like a little bit of a, a, you know, a lost profit in a sense when we just use a critical mind. And what's your take on Vince Garanda's kind of six by six, eight by eight for muscle density and sort of bodybuilding? purposes. I think Vince Garanda, whoever that is, um, I think six by six is a really good idea. I think it's the Louis Simmons thing where he's probably doing something that works, but he doesn't really know why. Um, but he's saying like muscle density and like, I wish we just get away from that. Like there's no density, like there's quality muscle fibers and obviously muscle fibers can be very dense. There's no muscle density and hardness. Like it's a level of dryness i guess if we're using another bodybuilding term but you know what six by six i think is great i think at six repetitions you can work within the intensity the barbell is prescribed for right six by six makes a whole lot of sense six repetitions falls within the efficiency we've applied to the barbell and allows me to drive a maximum amount of uh force production every single set uh it would allow me to do it you know, over six repetitions or over six sets won't really take a lot of time out of the workout. I'll probably be able to keep my technique high under eight repetitions. Um, and yeah, I can drive a lot of muscle fiber recruitment that would probably be stimulated from, you know, intelligent exercise choice post that. But I think, I think just subscribing to like a set and rep range, um, although there may be merit in an isolated sense, or if we look at it critically, like there could be a lot of merit to all of these rep ranges. But I don't think a program that blankets a, a set and rep range is any way a good way of going about things. I think, I think looking at what is the merit of choosing that set and rep range and then adapting that to other things. 
Alrighty. And Mahi, do you have anything? You've been awfully I'm, quiet. I'm just enjoying this because you know how you said you and Shallow have these conversations of like they're shouting at each other. Uh, Lewis and I have this thing. So these questions that he's asking you, he's asking me. And obviously, I, I just like these answers because I do get influenced by you guys a lot. So I try to like, you know, not on the same level, but give the same answers. So I'm just, I'm really enjoying the fact that uh, he, he's asking these questions and he's getting the answers that like, that just opens the mind up to like different levels. I think like, again, like I've said this, I said this a lot and like Shallow always quotes me as saying this, but like philosophy is meant to be discussed, not written down. Like philosophy was born of, you know, Plato and, and academia and you know it's born of people sitting around speaking with one another right it's born of this idea that this guy socrates literally asked people so many questions that they killed him he was executed for being a nuisance he was an ugly ugly man who annoyed people and asked humiliating questions and people had enough of it and they executed him and in order to continue in this mindset of you know, we should be inquisitive and we should be, we should be open to not humiliation, but open to a death of ego when it comes to thought and, and behavior. Plato decides to create after traveling this academia in which he brings people with none of them agree. They're all from geographically different places with, you know, massive differences in religion and thought process. And they all sit around, you know, in this building and they all talk to each other. And that is academia. Now, no one was writing anything down. They were discussing things and they were you know, this liquid organic thought process in which people were going, you know, I'm not going to change how I feel, but I'm going to take that idea. And, you know, I, I think that kind of fits. Whereas now what we see is people don't speak to each other. The first thing they do is they write an article. They either pay someone to prove their point or they write a program. The program exists. And then they ask any questions in which the defense can literally be, read my book. I already wrote an article about this. Check out this program. And it's like, well, you did that preemptively before you ever discussed this. Uh, I, I suck at writing. I suck at the internet. I rarely have things in which I can go back and be like, oh, I made a thing about this. That's why I choose to do, do these podcasts I love, the Q&As I love to do. I just want to discuss things. Like, I think all of this knowledge and all of these thoughts currently exist out there. I think it's a matter of us sitting down and discussing them where we can, you know, born from that can be greater ideas. But I think that was the, the birth and the birth of academia was discussion and the death of academia was, you know, the written word. I think also there's a sense of nowadays, there's a culture of outrage and it's very difficult to actually hold conversations on all sides of the aisle. I'm not, I'm not picking one political party. And it's just nowadays, if you disagree with someone, they get outraged and uh, there's cancel culture and, no one really wants to have a conversation that uh, causes a cognitive dissonance that sort of pushes their boundaries. And that's, I feel, a big problem in any field nowadays. Yeah, you know, I think it's funny, like a, a big part of that, uh, somebody, I think somebody commented on one of my like posts on Instagram and he was like, hey, you say, you say a lot of, or you, you talk a lot, but you say nothing. And like my response was, you're listening. Like at the end of the day, like I get paid to say everything that I say. And I think like, I think we forget about that. Oftentimes when we disagree, we choose to, you know, roast people like whatever I roasted, who knows who Vince Garanda is probably got a fatter bank account than me. Louis Simmons will forever die as this 
you know, godfather like sensei of strength training, you know, Charles Poliquin, RIP, you know, take a handful of D-ball for the homie. Like, at the end of the day, man, I think we're all too obsessed with um, creating a separate criteria for success out of the already established criteria of success. Like, just be strong if you do powerlifting. You make a lot of money if you have a business. And I think we forget that these are the societal criteria of success. Be humongous and unkillable. Make a lot of money and hire a humongous guy to make sure no one tries to kill you. And if you're either of those two guys, successful romantic partners will probably be in the cards for you. So I think we forget about these criteria and like, man, it's one great thing is being surrounded by so many people who I think have the same thought process. The other thing, it's terrible to be surrounded by people with the same thought process because no one's ever going to argue with you about what you say. But when sometimes people do argue with what you say, man, at the end of the day, many conversations are ended when someone takes their shirt off, right? So I think we forget about that on the internet sometimes too. We can all have different opinions, man. But at the end of the day, like success criteria is very generic. So, you know, if someone doesn't agree with what I say, well, chances are you had to listen to me say it. And that's not me being egotistical. It's just the fact of the matter is you invested the time, right? And, and to not agree is great. I think it's great to not agree. But you, in, you took in that information. I don't agree with stuff 99% of my day my job is to sit around and go, nah, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I have a better idea. But I had to take that in and I needed, we all need, we all need someone on the other side of the aisle to at least at the end of the day validate that we can think for ourselves. Because if you stood in a room and everyone was like, oh, I totally agree. I, I think the same way. It would become very eerie and very creepy really quick. So I think we need that. We need people on the other side of the aisle and we shouldn't, shy away from them we should seek them out not to change our opinion but to make us more steadfast in our opinion yeah i think we need a pluralism of ideas and we need to be able to push each other even if we disagree it's all it's all opinion at the end of the day Very much and uh, people need to stop being so emotionally invested in the their ego you know they need to actually dissociate themselves i believe and actually look at the conversation as a third person, as opposed to them taking the egotistical hit. Exactly. I believe this stems from Eastern philosophy, but I'm probably butchering it. But yeah, like, I think the ego is the biggest uh, issue. I know it's coined a lot nowadays, but I mean, it actually kind of makes sense. No, I think it's huge, right? There's like a, another good excerpt from, I'll just keep relating to Five Rings since I said it was important, but... Um, there's another excerpt in that book where they say um, small attention should be made to big things. Great amounts of attention should be paid to small things. And I think in the way when we look at this quote, it's almost like a chicken and the egg scenario where it's like, if I pay great amount of attention to all small things, nothing will ever seem big because it will never happen. Now, I think people make big deals out of small things. So I think we often overlook the small details that really matter in place of in place of things that don't really matter that we blow out of proportion. And I think if we each day took first off and, and, and foremost, the language that we use as the most important means of which we have in communication as we will speak and we'll write and we'll interpret things. If we paid more attention to the actual language that we use and what the words mean, it, communication all of a sudden becomes less of a big deal because we're just using more accurate language, whether that be to speak to fact 
or to speak to, to feelings, but to differentiate, like you said, these two things and at least speak to them in, in an accurate way rather than speaking about facts as if they're untrue or speaking about feelings as if they are. Exactly. I think a lot of people just major in the minors, just to coin the, just to, just to bring our podcast name into it. Uh, Mahi. Uh, uh, Kaelin, yeah. I want to be mindful of your time. And also, um, that's why we didn't bring in any stoicism into this podcast, because I know you're kind of like done dealing with stoicism, even though Lewis does like it. I told him off. For that i said don't bring it up <laughs> so yeah i think for now first of all i'm going to put it out there already we would love to have you again because i think these conversations just going to be like i would like to repeat it and just cover different areas as well uh but yeah because i don't want to take too much of your time uh, any uh, do you want to do any plugins for k2 coaching and uh, prescript and everything i'm going to drag lewis to pre uh, to skill acquisition he's going to be there but I really want to actually, I, I really kind of subscribe to your philosophy because it, it's real life. It's not just training. And that's why I like, Thank I like you. the kind of. And uh, dude, after talking to you for this, you know, hour and a bit, I would be extremely happy to have you in the course and obviously in the labs and where we can engage more, but no, I, I'd love, I'd love to come back. I think the next one, we'll just only talk about stoicism. That's all. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I'm so, I'm so down to talk about that because I think, that would be a great aside to the end of this conversation. Um, but, oh my God. With Sorry. <laughs> background thing happening right now. Um, but yeah, it, uh, if you want to hear more of me yelling about things or talking about skill acquisition, uh, prescript, pre-script.com slash skill acquisition or dash. You know what? Just go to prescript, go to courses. The skill acquisition course is available um it's six weeks it's the death of ten thousand hours it's not going to give you any answers but it's going to allow you to organize the answers that you already possess and make you a greater critical thinker and if you can buy back bandwidth in your day you will buy back money in your bank account um there are payment plans uh, available email info at pre-script.com we will sort you out we want you in the course i would love to talk to more people about this uh, and then if you're looking for coaching, consulting, if you want to reach out with any questions or thoughts as people love to berate me with, uh, k2coaching.ca is where you can find me or reach out at Instagram at killian.hamilton. Uh, shoot me a DM. I am available to talk to you. I have more than enough time. Perfect. Thanks awesome. so much, Killian. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. Like this was insightful and uh, I really hope to join the course and like, bring up ryan holiday with you i would love love more of ryan holiday <laughs> right. next right. time will be about stoicism then right. we should well, i'll try and get ryan holiday on i'm gonna message him on instagram All i right. think you, lewis is gonna cry if you do that <laughs> yeah. no i'm not actually a fan of him i'm more old school stoicism not this new gen everyone's a stoic bullshit okay yeah so that's that's fine though i have no problem i have no problem with ancient stoicism. I read meditations like nine years ago. I thought it was the most gangster book. I loved it. Like Five Rings and like Bushido, you know, Hagakuri, like all these books on Samurai Code, they're no different than stoicism. Like Shintoism in, in itself is very much a stoic uh, philosophy, but it's Ryan Holiday and the birth of the, the Instagrammed daily stoic that just drives me 
right out the window. Uh, so it's not stoicism in its entirety or what it stands for, but I think it's in its execution en masse by social media that I am disgusted with. Yeah. yeah, I think anything that becomes a trend just becomes butchered, and that's the problem. Yeah, I think anything in which the base level idea is the death of ego, in which it is used to just blow up egos left and right and center is really uh, funny and bizarre to me. Yeah. So, that's my feeling on that. If you're making an Instagram post about it, nine out of 10 times, that's just to show people, oh, I, I do this, right? And actually doing yeah. it. The minute you make an Instagram post, you're no longer stoic. Absolutely. Outside under an olive branch. That'll make you stoic. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you, man. Thank you so much for this. Thank you so much, mate.